The Exchange Podcast is brought to you in part by the University System of New Hampshire in partnership with its four institutions around the state. Visit usnh.edu slash yours to learn what you can accomplish here. From New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Casey McDermott, in for Peter Biello, and this is the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup on The Exchange. This week, the federal government announced it's extending the federal eviction moratorium by another month until the end of July. And yesterday, Senate and House Republicans passed a $13.5 billion two-year spending plan for the state. We'll talk about that and so much more today. And, you know, as many of you know, this is our final weekly New Hampshire News Roundup. And since the show will end, along with the exchange at the end of this month, we thought the best way to mark the end of this era at New Hampshire Public Radio was to do what the Roundup has always always tried to do. Focus on the issues affecting you, affecting your neighbors in New Hampshire right now. So that's what we're going to do one last time. And we really would love for you to join us to be part of the conversation. Give us a call today at 1-800-892-6477. Again, that's 1-800-892-6477. You can also use email to at exchange at nhpr.org. Again, that's exchange at nhpr.org. Or we're on Facebook or Twitter as well. And with us for this part of the program, we're going to be focusing mostly on the state budget at this uh, first stage. We have NHPR's senior political reporter, Josh Rogers. Thank you so much, Josh. Good morning, Casey. We also have Anne-Marie Timmons, senior reporter with the New Hampshire Bulletin. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Thank you. It's great to be here. Before we get into the questions, I just want to let people know my NHPR colleagues put together an explainer on the new New Hampshire state budget, everything you need to know. You can find that online at nhpr.org if you want to follow along while we talk. So I'll go to you first, Josh. Uh, The vote was close yesterday, um, at least in the House. There was some concern among Republicans coming into Thursday that they wouldn't have the majorities they needed to seal the deal. Do you have a sense of what kind of persuasion campaign ended up, you know, securing that vote for them? Well, there's a certain amount of inertia that that takes hold. Uh, people want to go away for the summer. Um, there was an argument that this budget is historic in terms of passing a broad array of conservative policies, from tax cuts to some of the social issues, including an abortion uh, limit after 24 weeks and uh, language uh, that would curb certain sorts of teachings on race and sex in, in House Bill 2, those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, down-the-line tax cuts for businesses. Um, People talked about it as a transformational budget. They said focus on the document as a whole. The the things that really hung this thing up for a while a bit with uh, particularly conservative lawmakers were two provisions. One was the feeling that it didn't go far enough to limit the powers of a governor in future emergencies. Uh, Essentially, it would be who would be in charge of pulling the plug or authorizing a state of emergency extension. Uh, and then there was the uh, paid family leave program that Governor Sununu wanted in the budget, put in his budget, was removed by the House, and the Senate reinserted it. And there was concern among some conservatives that, to borrow an argument that uh, Governor Sununu has used against uh, Democratic versions of this proposal, that this you know, uh, is sort of a slippery slope towards a state income tax, and it's something that should be provided by the private market without uh, government getting involved. Uh, ultimately, you know, as you say, the vote on the budget was reasonably close on the spending bit of it. Uh, House Bill 1, you know, it was basically a party line on uh, House Bill 2. 
I think there were eight or nine Republicans who voted against it. Uh, there was a certain uh, other segment of, of the caucus and Democrats, too, who didn't happen to be in their seats uh, during the vote. Hard to know what to make of that. But in any case, uh, this was a budget, House Bill 2, that a lot of close observers of the legislature thought was in danger but managed passing. And, and you know, you saw Governor Sununu calling it a win for uh, every family in the state. And uh, so he's going to be signing it. Um, and I think we have a little bit of tape from yesterday. I believe this is House Majority Leader Jason Osborne, and this is uh, his kind of, you know, plea to his colleagues to uh, to pass the budget. This bill contains progress on darn near every single campaign promise we made to our constituents last year. Uh, you know, I think we're going to ha- we may have to hold off on that audio. But as you were saying, Josh, you know, conservatives were really some conservatives, well, and, at least, and, were employing you know, their colleagues could, to keep in mind. If you could make mind, out yeah, what, what, yeah. what the majority leader was saying, he was saying that this budget uh, kept the promises, basically essentially every promise that Republicans made to voters last year. Um, you know, you could argue that that's true. Uh, Democrats would probably counter that this contained a lot that wasn't promised to voters, uh, particularly on the uh, on the social front, on uh, limits on abortion, on language, uh, policing, certain teachings on on race and sex. Those certainly weren't things that came up a lot on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. Anne-Marie, I want to go to you because you have, like Josh, a lot of experience covering the state budget process following the state house in New Hampshire. How surprising was it to see the budget kind of come down to the wire like it did this time around? It was interesting. I, I went into the day thinking that's how it would feel. And then as the session went on, it occurred, it felt to me like if you want to influence the budget, you have to, as a voter, you really have to start much, much earlier. Like it just felt like a foregone conclusion to me at that point. Uh, We had the bulletin, uh, my colleagues and I had sat down with the deputy speaker um, earlier in the week, and he really didn't feel that the sort of Freedom Caucus was going to upset the budget. He felt like they had, you know, come around. They felt like they had, you know, persuaded them to see what was in there for them rather than the pieces that they lost. And and I, after talking with him and some others, I kind of felt like it was going to be, it was going to pass. Mm -hmm. Josh, what about you? What do you think about this budget kind of in the context of past budget debates that you've seen in New Hampshire? Well, the fact that the budget was in any doubt, given a Republican majority, I mean, if you talk to a sort of a generic Republican uh, who served in the New Hampshire House, I mean, some might have looked askance at, at least historically, at at some of the the aspects of, of House Bill 2 that we've mentioned. But if you if you went to somebody at the beginning of the session or last year on the campaign trail and said, we're going to be passing a budget coming out of a pandemic that features, you know, the degree of spending that's in this thing leaves a rainy day fund with 158 million and includes tax cuts to uh, business taxes. We'll phase out the interest in dividends tax. We'll nip the, the the rooms and meals tax. Like they would take it. I mean, by the standards of a normal budget and by standards of where typically the budget process, if for Republicans, has historically been. Um, you know, what can we do to sort of cobble together enough money that will allow us not to raise taxes? And, you know, maybe there'll be some fees in there. Um, you know, this uh, this this budget uh, 
you know, includes no new taxes, no new fees, cuts to a lot of these things. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, coming out of the pandemic. I mean, last fall, Governor Sununu was talking about hundreds of million dollars worth of budget hole. You know, he was wrong, as were many governors were wrong. Um, there's a lot of money uh, flowing into the state's coffers. Um, you know, there's some there's some touchy points. Certainly, um, rooms and meals hasn't been strong, but, you know, strong real estate taxes, strong business tax collections, and also, uh, you know, flood of federal money, a billion dollars that the state will have to spend on top of money flowing to localities that, you know, is going to be sprinkled, uh, not in this budget, but sprinkled on top in terms, it'll be interesting to see how spending decisions made later in the summer, you know, complement decisions made in this, in this spending plan. But Democrats, you know, they had a lot to complain about this plan. They say it will downshift on the property tax. They have particular concerns about the implications of, you know, the, the, the education savings accounts, which is a sweeping, a sweeping change and something that, you know, Republicans had been leery of for fear that it will lead to an exodus out of the schools and will hurt property taxpayers. You know, we're going to see we're going to see what happens with that. Yeah. And so, you know, just kind of building off of off of what you were just saying, obviously, to remind people, as you mentioned, there are kind of two parts to the budget. There's the spending bill and then there is the budget trailer bill, which is kind of a laundry list of other policy changes. Um, You touched on a little bit of this, but I wonder, Josh, if you could give us a little bit more on, you know, with the spending bill, where are we seeing the biggest cuts right now? And where, if anywhere, are we seeing the biggest kind of most substantial new spending? Well, getting into to what's an actual cut and what presupposes slower growth in spending than what people want always gets murkier on the budget. I mean, one area where we are seeing um, spending is there is certainly some money in for mental health. There's the, you know $30 million to build a new secure psychiatric uh, unit, which is something that's been a priority for some time. You know, this budget does zero out a couple hundred jobs at the Department of Health and Human Services, although the final version did not require Health and Human Services to find $50 million in unspecified cuts. That was something that the, the House wanted them to do. This money, this budget also does carry forward a lot of money out of the current biennium into the next, which makes making, you know, the cliched apples to apples comparisons a little murky. Um, you know, there, the Democrats yesterday were saying they had grave concerns about some of the uh, potential impacts on family planning decisions, not making up uh, federal monies that uh, that Democrats had made up in the last budget will lead to um, problems there that sort of bled into a larger argument about uh, family planning and abortion debate in this debate. You know, certainly the local aid uh, will be a question. Uh, Republicans are saying that this money will include you know, it restores an element of the revenue sharing off of rooms and meals, about $50 million. And there's highway aid to cities and towns, another $83 million there, and, and water grants as well. Um, you know, we'll see. The, a lot of the rhetoric around during budget debates can feel almost rote about the implications. You know, somebody's always saying it's going to end up on the property tax, and somebody is generally right uh, to an extent. We don't know how right they are. This 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 debate yesterday, watching it was very different just because of the focus on the social issues that really have not historically been part of the budget process. And I think that, you know, fair-minded observers on both sides of the partisan divide would acknowledge that this House Bill 2, 2, 2 contained a lot of stuff that you don't normally see as part of a budget. 
Um, real quick before, I, I do want to turn our attention to that, but before we do, Anne-Marie, I just want to go to you briefly. I know mental health is something that you've spent a lot of time focusing on in your reporting. And I wonder, you know, in talking to advocates and community members, um, you know, do you have a sense of whether this budget meets the needs that people have been asking for in New Hampshire? I think there's some divide. Um, you know, Ken Norton at NAMI, who's been, you know, at this for years, would say this is a real step in the right direction. Um, we do need um, more beds for psychiatric care for both voluntary and involuntary. Um, there's been some funding to increase that. We need to have transitional housing. That's been increased as well. So we're going to see less of a you know backup at the state hospital. But I also think the community mental health centers um, who do the, you know the bulk of the mental health care for low and no, and no cost uh, across the state. I think there's a little skeptical or maybe a little cautious um, to, to see whether this will really, um, come to fruition, will the mobile crisis unit work as imagined? Um, so I think there, there's a mixed feeling there, definitely hopeful. Um, I think what the one thing that people feel is missing really is the, all of that you know, community level care that keeps people out of the hospital. Um, and so that is, you know, there wasn't a lot of attention on that. There was, you know, talk about it, but not a lot in the budget for that. So that'll be the real next question on that front. Mm -hmm. And of course, people should continue to follow the New Hampshire Bulletin and New Hampshire Public Radio for ongoing coverage of that issue. Again, if you want to join the conversation today, we would love to hear your thoughts on the state budget and its implications. We also are taking your questions on housing in New Hampshire, rental assistance, and the you know expected lifting of the eviction ban next month. You can call us at 1-800-892-6477. Again, that's 1-800-892-6477. You can also email us at exchange at nhpr.org. Um, I do want to turn now to, you know, Josh, as you said, it is rather remarkable to see the degree of kind of policymaking in this budget that, that we saw here. Um, one of the issues that I think, you know, got a lot of attention was this quote unquote, divisive concepts legislation. Um, can you give us a sense of where that ended up? Because I know there were several iterations of that actual policy. Well, the so-called divisive concepts uh, bill, which was best known as House Bill 544, that was proposed in the House. Uh, you know, one of the co-sponsors was actually the House Majority Leader, Jason Osborne. That was um, tacked onto the budget in the House. You know, Governor Sununu raised for him, pretty strenuous objections to this. He uh, said it potentially trampled on free speech, that it un would undercut local control, that um, he, he didn't want it in there, indicated he could even veto the budget over this. Uh, so that was junked in the Senate. The Senate started over, and they added something in which they called a right to freedom from discrimination in public education and workplaces, which is sort of a mouthful, but it sort of situated some similar concepts to the divisive concepts bill uh, in current education and civil rights statutes. And essentially, both these bills boil down to, um, you know, prohibition on teaching or training in public settings that would suggest that intrinsic characteristics could make somebody inherently oppressed or oppressive. And, um, you know, obviously, this is a this is an issue that's going on nationwide. Something that Republicans are really pushing against, you know, what they're calling critical race theory, which, in the way that most people talk about it, is sort of an umbrella for 
uh, things that can, you know, on the range from like diversity training to, you know, actually uh, academic doctrine. Um, you know, this bill went in, this this language went in the Senate. You know, Governor Sununu says he's got no problems with it. And you know, among other things, though, this bill would allow public employees to opt out of trainings that, that, that they don't like, that they feel are discriminatory, um, which is interesting. Governor Sununu was, was, was some time ago a real vocal advocate of the need for implicit bias training among law enforcement. Um, it also creates this, the, the language that's going to become law also creates a, a right of action for parents who believe that school districts um, have curricula or are teaching their children in a way that is discriminatory. And so the upshot of that, we don't really know. I mean, I've talked to people who had concerns about this throughout. Some, including folks at the ACLU, for instance, would say that the, the version that's becoming law uh, might actually be more problematic from their perspective. You know, Governor Sununu and Republicans say this amounts to civil rights protection. So we'll, we'll see how this plays out. Mm -hmm. Anne-Marie, um, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I just add on to that. One thing I think um, is going to be important to watch is this allows uh, parents to, you know, bring action essentially against schools. I, I think it's going to be very hard to, uh, for teachers to know how to walk that line. You know, something goes wrong in a classroom. I've seen this in my, you know, brief time working in schools. You know, something goes wrong and it, it becomes uh, he said, she said in the classroom. And it's, it's become hard for teachers, I think, to defend themselves against that, especially when it's, you know, presented through a student who's, who might be upset that they were reprimanded or forced to do more homework or what didn't do their homework, kept in a recess. It, you know, allegations build up pretty quickly um, against teachers. And I think that's going to be hard for schools to manage if parents do feel like, you know, there's their student, like, how do you, how do you go back and untangle a conversation uh, where a student feels like there was some uh, systemic racism uh, brought down on them, so to speak. Mm -hmm. one, one other aspect of this that is, that is worth noting is the potential enhanced role that the State Department of Education may play in both potentially policing uh, teacher conduct that, that parents complain about, but also in issuing guidance uh, for districts as a whole, which is something that uh, that Governor Sununu said he expects to be forthcoming. And uh, Education Commissioner Frank Edelblue uh, has been involved from the beginning in discussions around this issue. He's certainly somebody with political ambitions and, and a real point of view on these issues. And so that's going to be interesting to watch how he how he and his department respond to this also. Mm -hmm. And, I, you know, my, my understanding as well is that, you know, this particular policy drew outcry, drew opposition, um, you know, not just from civil rights advocates, not just from community advocates, but also from the Business and Industry Association well, as and, well. well which and, is... and then, I mean, a, a lot of, of, from both business and industry point of view and from, uh, you know, kind of more civil rights advocates point of view, I mean, they've raised a question, if we're trying to make New Hampshire a more welcoming place to people who aren't white and who people who may be moving here from uh, more... Uh, varied by population communities different ethnicities that this may not be the best way to be you know kind of rolling out the welcome mat for a state that's trying to uh, trying to trying to become more diverse mm -hmm. we're going to pause for a moment i think we have a caller on the line um cassidy and thornton um thank you for joining us we, uh, what what would you like to say about the state budget well, I have extreme concern regarding this budget and the social aspects that have been included in it. 
<clears throat> I don't see us as being a live free or die state anymore. I think we are losing freedom uh, if the governor does pass this budget. Uh, the teachers are, have been threatened uh, in regard to what they can teach, in regard to truth and history. Women have been threatened related to abortion after 24 weeks, including in catastrophic situations where a fetus can be ex extremely ill with lifelong disability. And also MDs have been threatened with prison and fines if they were to assist with abortion over 24 weeks. As been stated, we will lose our GYN and OB physicians. They will not work here anymore. We already have so few as it is. The governor should please, please veto this, the, this terrible, terrible uh, interference with freedom in our state. Thanks, Cassidy, for uh, for your comments this morning. Again, if you want to call and be part of this conversation, um, 1-800-892-6477 is the number to join. Just very briefly, because I think we only have a few minutes here. Anne-Marie, I know you were following the new provisions on abortion that were included in this budget. Could you just clarify for us what this changes and how substantial a policy shift is this for New Hampshire on abortion policy? I think Cassidy uh, described it quite well. It is a big shift. Currently, we have two abortion restrictions. They're the only two passed in the last decade. One is parental notification. Parent has to tell a, you know, child has to tell a parent if they're having an abortion or go through a judicial bypass system. Uh, the other is a ban on partial birth abortions. We haven't had anything in the last 10 years. So in that respect, it is a, it's a big change. And the 24-week ban, I, I know it's been characterized, well, it's late in the pe pregnancy, um, you should know by then if you want to have an abortion. These aren't elective abortions at this point. At 24 weeks, they're really life kinds of abortions, mother's health, fetus's health. And so in our version of this, which is headed to the governor, the mother's health is taken into account. As Cassie said, the fetal health is not. And the governor has compared us uh, to, to Massachusetts and New York saying they have the same ban and those are liberal states. They have a 24-week ban or a time limit ban. They have different, um, they're not exactly the same. Massachusetts does account for the fetus's health, and New York does not uh, criminalize doctors who, if they, you know, perform these after the fact. So though it, you, I think you have to look at all of the restrictions. It's not just the, the 24 weeks. And so in that regard, we are, it's, it's more restrictive than at least those two states that the governor points to. And Josh, I know you have been looking at, you know, the governor's stance in the last few years and his kind of stated stances on abortion and reproductive rights. He's said he's going to sign this. How unexpected is that given his past positions? Well, uh, you know, it's an interesting question because on the one hand, it's interesting that a, that a Republican governor who is avowedly pro-choice, that's, that's how he describes himself, would be in a position to sign you know, what you could argue is the first truly significant uh, abortion restriction, a conse really consequential one, um, not to not to not to diminish the other laws in the books. But I mean, this is a bigger deal than those. Um, 
And you know, he said he he says I didn't propose this. this essentially, this wasn't my idea, but you know, I'm going to sign it. And you know, the the this was something that was in the budget to get it through to some degree. So, you know, he says, you know, budget. You're not going to like everything in the budget. I'm not necessarily wild about this. I will sign it. You know, yesterday he said this budget. He didn't cite these provisions, but amounted to a big win for every citizen and family in New Hampshire. You know, every time he's run for office, I mean, Democrats tend to run against Republicans regardless of their stated position as uh, people that you shouldn't trust when it comes to reproductive rights and and women's health issues and abortion. Um, Certainly everyone who's challenged Governor Sununu has tried to do that. He's done a pretty good job of navigating this. This certainly gives his political opponents, uh, you know, hard evidence that they haven't really had before. I mean, before it was hinged on the fact that he voted against one Planned Parenthood contract as executive counselor. Um, you know, we'll see what this means. It's, it's you know, it, it, it's a little surprising that a guy who ran saying he wasn't envisioning the need for any new laws on abortion, that's what he told WMUR straight up in an interview last year. He's saying, you know, I didn't propose this, but it's part of a big budget. I'm not going to be irresponsible to veto a whole budget over this. You know, his critics might say, well, he vetoed a whole budget before over a very small percentage difference in the desired tax rate of the business profits tax. So, you know, we'll, we'll see where this goes with him. And Josh, you alluded to this, but I imagine that you and a lot of other people are going to be watching the governor's next steps pretty closely in terms of where he takes his political career from sure. here. Sure. I mean, he's been signaling that, that you know, he's planning to have uh, a, a good summer focused on non-political pursuits uh, to some extent. You know, make of that what you will. He's under a great deal of pressure to run for U.S. Senate. And, you know, polling would indicate he'd be in a pretty strong position against Maggie Hassan. Um, but we're a long ways away from that now. But certainly everyone's waiting for him to, to decide what he's going to do next. You know, run for another term as governor, do something totally different, go for Senate, but then there'll be other kind of dominoes that will fall in the wake of his decision. And Anne-Marie, just really quick before we head into a break here, what will you be watching most closely as this budget, you know, becomes a reality and as we head into the summer and fall months on New Hampshire policy? Three things. One, where abortion goes, um, both in terms of governor signing it and and as a political uh, issue, the mental health, how that rolls out. And, you know, I also want to watch where this Freedom Caucus goes. Uh, do they feel emboldened by this? Do they and try to expand their their uh, reach in the, the legislature, have more of a voice? So I think that'll be interesting as well. Well, Anne-Marie Timmons, senior reporter with New Hampshire Bulletin, thank you so much for joining us. And everyone definitely keep following Anne-Marie and her colleagues' coverage over there. They're doing a great job making sense of a, um, you know, pretty uh, complicated and fast-moving New Hampshire legislative session. NHPR's senior political reporter, Josh Rogers, thank you so much for being with us and definitely follow along for Josh's ongoing political coverage as well. Bon voyage Friday news roundup. Well, thanks for joining us in the studio for this last one. After a break, we will turn to another really important issue that we know is affecting lots of people across New Hampshire. The housing crunch, the lack of affordable housing, and, you know, the threat of eviction that many families and individuals are facing. Listeners, we would love to hear from you. We would love to answer your questions. Give us a call at 1-800-892-6477 or email us at exchange at nhpr.org and tune in. We'll be back in just a moment.
Good morning. I'm Casey McDermott, and this is the weekly New Hampshire News Roundup on the Exchange on NHPR. Thank you for tuning in. As we mentioned, this is the last weekly New Hampshire News Roundup, the last live exchange program. Monday on the Exchange, we will be rebroadcasting our earlier conversation with author Rebecca Carroll as part of our Writers on a New England Stage series. NHPR host Peter Biello spoke with Carroll about her new book, Surviving the White Gaze. That's Monday morning on the Exchange. So now we're going to turn our attention to a issue that, you know, as we said earlier, is affecting a lot of people in New Hampshire and nationally right now. That is the issue of housing. A federal moratorium on evictions was set to expire at the end of this month, but the CDC actually just announced plans to renew that ban through the end of July. That's given people a little bit more of a buffer zone, but there's still a lot of people who are on edge, not sure what you know, their housing situation is going to be like in the next few months. There are thousands of renters as well in New Hampshire who are waiting to hear if they're going to get any help paying their bills through the state's new emergency rental assistance program. We have two people here to help us make sense of where things stand in the state's housing landscape right now. One of them is my colleague, Daniela Alley. She is New Hampshire's New Hampshire Public Radio's Upper Valley reporter. She also does a lot of work on housing and housing access issues for us. Thank you so much for being here, Daniela. Daniela. Thanks for having me, Casey. Also with us by phone is Elliot Barry. He's a managing attorney and housing project director with New Hampshire Legal Assistance. Welcome, Elliot. Thank you so much for making time to answer questions today. My pleasure. So, Elliot, starting at a very basic level, could you explain for us what the eviction moratorium does and what does it not do? Sure. Uh, the moratorium focuses on tenants who Uh, are behind in their rent. And what it says is that um, people who have lost income or uh, or have incurred significant increases in expenses or uh, suffer from other financial hardships directly or indirectly related to the COVID-19 pandemic uh, can fill out a declaration form uh, affirming that the, uh, they qualify for the moratorium and give it to their landlord. And at that point, they are protected from eviction uh, through the end of the moratorium, which has now been extended through July 31st. However, even there, remember, if you are such a covered person, you still can be evicted if you, you know, if you significantly breach your lease, if you cause damage, if you threaten, threaten the health and safety of other tenants. But otherwise, if it's just a question of non-payment and you fill out that declaration and you meet the requirements of having a COVID-related financial hardship, uh, then you can be, um, then you're protected. But it's not automatic. So it's not and it's also not, you know, as you said, just for the sake of making it abundantly clear to people, this is not a ban on all evictions automatically. That's that's right. And over, you know, I've just been tracking this over the last since New Year's. We're still seeing about uh, 60 filings uh, a week, which is about in New Hampshire eviction filing. And that's about one half of the average from uh, 2019, which is the last pre-COVID year. Got it. So we know as well that the state is trying to help people who still need to repay rent or other utilities or people who may, you know, in the future need to 
have some help paying for rent or other utilities. People who need help can go to capnh.org for more information and, you know, to find out how to apply. But we also know that a lot of people who have applied, according to the state statistics, are still waiting to find out if they will get that money to help pay their bills. So, Elliot, another question about that. If I am someone who has applied for this rental assistance, I have a pending application, but I'm worried that that's not going to come through in time to help keep me from being evicted. What steps can I take? Yeah, this is a, a really important issue. Uh, the good news is that the legislature passed SB 126, which does give a tenant the right to uh, pay their arrearage and stay beat the eviction right up until the time of the eviction hearing. So that, once the governor signs it, it's effective uh, upon signature, and that will be helpful. But we don't know when he's going to sign. And in addition, some people, because of how long it, it often takes to get a decision from the uh, community action agency, that won't help some people. So we are urging the court system to consider um, uh, continuing any, case, any eviction case for non-payment when the uh, defendant tenant can establish that they do have an application for uh, what they call ERAP assistance pending. So, Elliot, it sounds like you're saying that people should make sure if they have a pending application that they notify the court system if they are also facing a pending eviction and that, you know, they just make sure to stay in communication with all the different agencies that are involved in that process. Yeah, I would, if they have, in fact, filed an application, I would um, advise them to actually file a motion to continue, that is to postpone the case. And if uh, they call, a, if, if they didn't get a form for such a pleading from uh, uh, the, what's now called 603 Legal Aid, which can be accessed through www.nhlegalaid.org. And Daniela, you've also been following just some of the challenges more broadly that people have encountered when trying to apply for housing assistance. Could you tell us a little bit about where people are running into some barriers? Sure. People that I've been talking with over the last couple of days have said, you know, um, consistent with perhaps the last round of uh, housing assistance that the state had is uh, making sure all the documentation is there for the application to maybe be processed a little bit more quickly. Um, And so that can be an issue. And, you know, two, when CAPS are processing these applications, they're reaching out to people via email or over the phone to try to, you know, get in touch with them if they have questions. And sometimes that can be a challenge. So just, you know, for folks who might be listening, who might be wondering about their application, uh, I've heard check your spam folder in your email, make sure your voicemail uh, is clear so people can leave voicemails um, and to be checking those. And I've also heard, you know, for some people, it's difficult to access, you know, this application online and um, being able to, I know that there are paper applications available. If you call the CAPS, um, I know in the Upper Valley, uh, Listen Community Services has, you know, had people come in and they help them fill out that application right there with them. Um, So those kinds of things uh, can pose challenges if, you know, you don't have access to the internet or don't have access to the computer or, you know, you don't have a smartphone um, and you can't do that. So, Daniela, you touched on this a a little bit, but it sounds like you said, you know, in the Upper Valley, there's Listen, where people can come and have on-site, in-person assistance filling out the application. People can also go to CAPS in their region for assistance. Are there any other resources or any other places where people can turn for help with the application portion? 
Um, I mean, I think, you know, you'll probably find like other similar local agencies um, in, in whatever part of the state you're in. You know, I've heard uh, from folks that I talked with, you know, people at church could help you apply or, you know, just other family members or friends. Um, so I think, you know, we've gotten if, if you know someone who maybe has access to the Internet, being able to, to walk them through uh, through that application. Um, Elliot, I want to go back to you. What if, you know, say again that I am a renter who um, is concerned about eviction or just concerned about my ability to pay. Um, Maybe I want to apply for this rental assistance program, but my landlord isn't cooperating or I'm just having trouble maybe getting in touch with them. What steps or what avenues um, can that person take if, if that's their situation? And it, what's a really important improvement in this ERAP program over the prior one is that if the landlord is not, uh, is not uh, participating or cooperating, the CAP can actually provide the money directly to the tenant. And there is a protocol that the, uh, that the CAPs use in order to, you know, to say how many, what kind of efforts that the that the cap people have to make before they determine that um, you know that they can just give the money to the tenant, but that option is definitely there. And actually, under the ERAP two, pro, without getting too in too far into the woods or the weeds, I should say, the um, there are two fund ERAP uh, pieces of legislation. And under the second one, the tenant can just ask for the money, that the money be given to him and him or her. Uh, without even having to try to get the landlord to participate. But, but I don't think we're spending our ERAP2 money. Um, but definitely for people who are not getting cooperation from their landlord, they can uh, and should be asking the CAP to have money paid to them directly. Mm-hmm. Elliot, we also got a question from someone about this topic, and I'm not sure if you can help clarify. This person says, I have heard that unsafe housing includes living with abuse, and the New Hampshire Emergency Rental Assistance Program can be used to help people out of these situations. Is that a scenario that someone would be able to um, you know, find relief through that program? I believe it is, and certainly they would be if they if they can make a connection between the abuse uh, and some even indirect connection between the abuse and COVID. Uh, to tell you the truth, if there is no such connection, uh, I'm not sure that um, that they can get the assistance, but they should definitely try. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that um, we have heard is that, you know, when we put out a call for questions for this segment, we also heard from some landlords and in particular, you know, smaller mom and pop landlords who say they're also in a tough spot right now financially. Maybe they need to pay their property taxes. Maybe they need to, you know, deal with other kind of maintenance repairs, things like that. Um, what kind of relief, is, if any, is available to to landlords right now? Well, this ERAP program is as big a benefit to landlords as it is to tenants. I mean, already, this is as of June 5th, more than $16 million have been sent directly to landlords, although a, a small percentage of that goes to utility companies, but let's say 14 or $15 million, and the program's still fairly new. So the landlords are ben- benefiting enormously uh, from the ERAP program, and I know that many are very active in making sure that their tenants apply. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, Elliot, you alluded to this as well, but, you know, it, as you said, evictions have not stopped entirely. Um, we, you know, have heard from people who said that, you know, they still have been evicted and they're having trouble finding a new place to live. So it's not just a matter of staying in your current home. It's a matter of, you know, if you have to move on for whatever reason, there are fewer and fewer places to go. Um, And it sounds like, you know, the rental market and the housing market are pretty competitive. So if you have an eviction on your record, um, will that make it harder for people in this already very competitive housing environment? And what could someone do if they're in that situation? Yeah, that's that's the $64,000 question. You're absolutely right that once you have a recent eviction on your record, that makes it much harder. Uh, And especially the people who are being evicted now, many of them are being uh, evicted for behavior-related evictions, so that makes it even harder. You have the vacancy rate statewide that's under 2%, which is really, really tight. And rents are very, very high. Uh, even in this market, even people who have Section 8 vouchers, that, you know, where they only have to pay 30 percent of their income and the, uh, the housing authorities are guaranteeing the rest of the rent. Uh, and even there, there are a lot of people who have these vouchers and can't find anybody to rent to them. So uh, the market is a mess. And I think when the moratorium expires, unless people really, really get serious about uh, applying for the ERAP funds, I think the shelters uh, are going to be filled and a lot of people uh, are going to be in campgrounds, which is, I'm sure you know has already uh, become a big issue in Manchester. Mm-hmm. Um, Daniela, just on that same topic, I know you've been following the housing market statewide. Um, what other issues do you think people may run into in terms of finding a place to live or what kind of concerns are you hearing from people maybe who work in community organizations or local welfare offices or other support organizations as they're thinking about the end of this policy? Yeah, I mean, I think similar to what Elliot was saying is that uh, there's we get, we know the landscape currently of what the housing market's going to look like, but I think there's also a sense of like, well, how many people might be affected? How many people might we start to see in welfare offices? Because frankly, from my conversations with welfare officers this week, they are actually seeing fewer people come into their offices. And they've said maybe that's because of the enhanced unemployment benefits. Maybe that's because we have these other assistance programs. But even the people that they are still seeing come through their office, even if it's that a third or a half of what their normal monthly rate is, they're still coming in for housing issues, right? And so they're still coming in trying to figure out hey, I am actively, like what Elliot was saying, I'm actively searching for an apartment. I have a voucher, but I'm still, you know, in uh, in a shelter at the moment or I'm in a motel. Um, and I think, too, you know, part of it is, especially in, you know, our more high-priced areas like the Portsmouth area, even in the Upper Valley, you know, I had a welfare officer tell me, like, I tell people, if you have a voucher, don't spend any of your time looking here in Portsmouth. Like, you need to go for maybe further away, maybe an hour north, maybe west. But again, those those more rural parts of the state might not have as robust of a public transportation system or other kinds of supports, or even, frankly, like enough housing stock themselves. So you have this kind of, or, you know, too, I've also heard from folks that like, you know, maybe the expense for a two, maybe bring in $3,000 a month, but the two bedroom you can find is like two grand. 
um, that makes it really challenging even if you are working full time making 3k a month to pay that rent and you know the the rest of your living expenses and try to save <laughs> at all so those that's kind of like the scenario that i'm hearing you know both in the seacoast area and you know in the upper valley as well mm-hmm. elliot if someone is in a situation where they rely on housing vouchers or other assistance and they are worried or or are in fact running into situations where um you know landlords or other uh, you know, housing will not accept that. Um, what options do they have? What are their rights in that situation? Um, there are two different scenarios. If you have a voucher uh, and, and the landlord doesn't want to participate and take your voucher, um, there's nothing under our current law that you can do. Uh, New Hampshire Housing is experimenting with a, uh, a very new program to try to pro- provide some financial incentives for landlords to uh, uh, to sign up uh, Section 8 tenants. But uh, right now, unlike uh, some other states, uh, there's no, uh, no obligation for a landlord to take the voucher. Where you have a tenant in place and the landlord, you know, who, who qualifies for local welfare assistance to help pay their rent, uh, if the, it is a defense to an eviction for non-payment that the uh, landlord refused to cooperate with the local welfare agency. So they're very different situations. But um, it's bleak, and I think we do need legislation that provides both carrots and sticks uh, in regard to landlords accepting Section 8 assistance. Elliot, just very briefly before we wrap up here, I wonder if there's any other kind of higher level um, you know, information that people should know if you're if you're a renter about your rights right now or what resources there are to help you navigate these kind of precarious housing situations? Yeah, I think for sure uh, the place to go if there's any legal implications at all is to contact what is now known as 603 uh, Legal Aid, uh, formerly the Legal Advice and Referral Center. And again, they're at www.nhlegalaid.org. They do a lot of advice, some representation, and they refer cases to us at New Hampshire Legal Assistance when they think they're kind, they are the kinds of things that we can litigate. Well, thanks so much. Oh, or, sorry, go sure. ahead. No, I, I was also just going to say that, you know, to back up and, and big picture, we the housing shortage that is we're acutely experiencing here in New Hampshire is... Uh, exacerbated big time and maybe even caused by uh, restrictions on development, especially uh, in suburban uh, and exurban communities. Uh, at the end of the day, and I know the governor's been interested this in this and trying to incentivize towns to do something uh, to be less restrictive, but builders are dying to build the housing and they re- it's just Few want to sue their way into a municipality until uh, we break down some of those regional or those um, municipal barriers. It is going to be very, very difficult to uh, to solve this problem, even though the federal government is making a lot of money available. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Elliot. And we will make sure definitely to put those resources on our website. Daniela, I want to just turn to you, building off of what Elliot was talking about. What other big picture housing issues are you following right now? And will you be following through the end of the eviction moratorium and beyond? 
Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is this question of uh, something that is just really stuck in my mind as I've been talking to people is, well, like, what what do you do right now in the short term, right? We can't, you know, wave a wand and have magically like 10 to 15,000 more units available. That takes several years. So what happens in the short term? And, and how are people trying to think about that and come up with solutions for what happens after the eviction moratorium? Um, and you know, frankly, just like I, there's this initiative in the Upper Valley called Keys to the Valley, and they've projected that it's, you know, that area needs about 10,000 new homes of all kinds by 2030 to meet that increased demand, um, which apparently is three times more homes than were created in the Upper Valley between 2010 and 2020. Um, so I think issues around that, issues around uh, uh, just, you know, a similar you have retro programs, but also kind of, I don't know, like, how do you, how, how do you continue to find housing when that seems like even in the last couple of months in the last year, that crunch has been, you know, exacerbated? Um, I guess you, before we go, I just have like two things that, you know, I've heard from people from the CAPS this week is that if you have applied for housing assistance um, and, you know, sometimes on average that could take, you know, a month to process is to let your landlord know that you have applied, that that process is going on, um, and also that landlords can apply on behalf of their tenants for uh, this assistance. So just some practical information there for folks to use. Great. Thank you so much, Daniela. And we will definitely have that and other important information on our website. You can find some of it on our website already at nhpr.org. Again, thank you to NHPR. NHPR's Daniela Ali, our Upper Valley reporter and housing reporter here at NHPR. And uh, thank you as well to Elliot Berry, managing attorney and housing project director with New Hampshire Legal Assistance. Both of them joined us for this last segment. After a break, we will come back with NHPR's Ali Pham to discuss the latest on COVID-19 news here in New Hampshire, as that is, you know, fading a little bit as we focus on these other issues. If you have questions, email exchange at nhpr.org and stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the final segment of the final weekly New Hampshire News Roundup. I'm Casey McDermott, sitting in for Peter Biello. We're going to spend this part of the program talking about the latest COVID information in New Hampshire and just kind of catching up on where things stand as people are navigating this phase in the pandemic. If you have questions or comments, call 1-800-892-6477 or email us at exchange at nhpr.org. And I'm so happy to have NHPR's Ali Pham here with us this morning. She's our health and equity reporter. Welcome, Ali. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, happy to be here as well. So I want to kind of back up um, before we talk about, you know, the numbers or where the case counts are. Ali, you've been working on this new project for NHPR, which is tied to the pandemic and the impact that the pandemic has had on the lives of women in New Hampshire. Could you tell us a little bit more about why you decided to focus on this? Yeah, I have been. The project is called Overtime. It launched last week. And so every Thursday for six weeks on Morning Edition, we've got a story. We're meeting one of the six women in our series and just kind of hearing how the pandemic has impacted their lives lives. And, you know, as you had mentioned, this very kind of wacky phase of the pandemic we're in where it's it's really lessened its grip on on daily life, but it's also still here. Um, and so the reason I wanted to to do this series, it, it's really twofold. One, we know women were hit disproportionately by the pandemic. And of course, if you, you know, break that down by race, the impacts are even more acute for black and Latino women. And 
at the same time, the pandemic has kind of pulled back the curtain on all of the labor that women do, you know, the stuff that we value in our GDP, but also things like childcare, things like caregiving for a parent or even, you know, going to the grocery store and getting groceries for a neighbor. And I think, you know, pre-pandemic, so many women kind of found ways to try and keep all of these roles separate and kind of the, the when the pandemic hit, those all just collided in such a messy way. So the goal of this series, I think, is to kind of track both of these things and keep the conversation going. And for me, you know, one the most exciting way to do that is is through these stories that center the experiences of women here in New Hampshire. And Ali, I know that one kind of central theme you touched on just now and also that you've been focusing on heavily in this series is that of caregiving mm-hmm. in New Hampshire and also, you know, more broadly. Um, what kind of challenges are people facing when they are trying to find caregiving resources in New Hampshire? And on the flip side, what kind of challenges are caregiving providers facing right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our story this week actually was really centered on that issue of kind of what I've been calling the childcare crunch, where um, we met a woman who is trying to get back into the workforce. And what she's been finding is that a lot of the jobs that are available aren't flexible enough to allow her to meet her childcare needs on her own, or they don't quite pay enough to allow her to afford care. And um we, one of the other kind of surprising things that I found in my reporting on, on the child care situation was at least when you look at licensed providers in the state, the total number of licensed slots has actually remained relatively similar um, to pre-pandemic levels at around 46,000. But the workforce shortage in this that the industry was already facing has been exacerbated. So what I was hearing from some providers is that they actually can't fill all of those slots because they don't have the, the staff. Well, we will definitely continue following your reporting on that. There is a lot to focus on that we could cover for for hours and hours and hours. (laughs) But again, uh, tune in and uh, check out Overtime, Ali's series on NHPR. You can find that on NHPR.org. Just very briefly, because we only have a few minutes here. Um, Ali, you also alluded to this, that we are in like a weird phase of the pandemic right now. So strange. I think you kind of, you know, you you had a reporting trip earlier this week that kind of illustrated um, the surreal moment that we are in. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and and what you learned there? Yeah, absolutely. I took a trip to Memorial Hospital in North Conway on Wednesday and kind of spent some time hanging specifically around some of their more COVID-specific operations. So I hung out at their testing center and their vaccine clinic. And for both of those, their demand has just dropped. I mean, testing right now, they're doing about 25 to 30 a morning. They used to run that clinic for much longer hours than we're doing around 150 a day. Vaccines, similar thing. They're doing around 30 a day. They were doing around 350 a a day. So they're kind of figuring out how do we ramp or how do we unwind all of these COVID measures, but at the same time, how do we stay prepared to turn them back on if there's a, you know, the variants get worse or if there's a booster and we've got to give vaccines again. So um, that's that's kind of been what they've they've been looking at in terms of COVID. And Ali, you know, at this moment, what are you watching in terms of COVID and in terms of where the pandemic goes from here and where, you know, New Hampshire goes from here? Yeah, I mean, I think I am watching that that wacky transition and i think the way in which it's it's 
kind of impacted people's mental state where they're just like, mm-hmm. what the heck is going on? Um, you know, I spoke to Will Owen, who's the emergency preparedness manager, and, you know, it was tough for him to watch the demand for vaccines suddenly drop out. Mm-hmm. Well, we will continue following your reporting and please continue following all of NHPR's reporting on, you know, life in New Hampshire especially in the pandemic and beyond. And that's all for today's roundup. Remember, you can find links to all the stories we discussed at NHPR.org. Again, this is our final weekly New Hampshire News Roundup. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being part of the conversation. And please continue to be part of the conversation on NHPR. We will have many ways for you to participate at NHPR.org and on our air. We are not going away. We hope you don't either. The Exchange is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. Today's show was produced by producer Jane Vaughn. Our senior producer is Christina Phillips. Jessica Hunt is a producer as well. Our engineer is Dan Colgan. Our executive producer is Michael Brindley. And I'm Casey McDermott. Again, thank you so much for listening to The Exchange, to the weekly New New Hampshire News Roundup, and to NHPR. And uh, we're not going anywhere, so please continue participating in our conversation. Thanks. The views expressed in this program are those of the individuals and not those of NHPR, its board of trustees, or its underwriters. If you liked what you heard, spread the word. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts to help other listeners find us. And thanks.